feels yeah. like such simpler times that there was uh, an issue launch in a subway station. Yeah. Or that I would even go to, go to that. <laughs> like leave my apartment yeah. to hang out in a subway station. Hi, I'm Rachel Handler, and welcome to Lady Problems, where every Thursday, me and a rotating crew of ladies look at the way pop culture treats women with the women who make pop culture. This week, my co-host is MTV News' own style editor, Haley Mladic. Hello, Haley. Hi, Rachel. <laughs> and Haley and I are here to talk to Durga Chubos. Hi, Durga. Hi. Uh, she's the author of the new essay collection, Too Much and Not the Mood, and she's also Haley's good friend. So Haley actually edited three of the essays that appear in the book. So we're going to talk deeply about those essays. We'll also talk to Durga about the strange and bittersweet nature of living alone, the blissful relief of hiding in a movie theater during the oppressive New York summer, and what it sounds like to fall off a bridge. Later, Durga's going to teach us all about Polly Platt, who was one of the most influential producers and production designers and screenwriters in history, who, by nature of being a woman in Hollywood with a million different talents during the 70s and 80s, was overshadowed by the men in her life. I remember the first essay that I read of yours was on the hairpin. It was um, the Since Living Alone essay. And I loved it. Like, it stuck with me forever. Do you want to talk a little bit about, like, where that essay came from and how you decided to write it? It definitely came from the plainest possible source, which is when you're a writer, you feel like there's so much you could write about, but you're also faced with maybe not as much as you wish, you know, and living alone, like the patterns that were developing in front of me were just becoming more and more obvious. So it wasn't like I decided I was going to write this piece. I think I just realized that everything was that was affecting me at a certain point in my life was a result of living alone, you know. Um, and so I think I just basically opened a Word document and sort of like started piling in all those ideas and and usually how I pitch things which is totally unprofessional is I pitch <laughs> them like mid idea without really much sense of what it's going to be and I I'm explicit about that I think I told you even when I pitched it to you at the hairpin that yeah. I wasn't really sure what this was but it was going to be about all these different like signifiers for me at the time or even like pop culture iconography or stuff that I just felt was all like falling into the basket of living alone so yeah, it wasn't it wasn't as thought out. And I don't think it even reads like that thought out in some ways. But I think it was one of those things where you're in a specific environment a lot, which was my apartment. And so what else was there to write about? <laughs> For people who may not have read it, can you explain a little bit about what that essay is about? Yeah. The essay Since Living Alone is about my first experience living by myself in an apartment that's completely my own. And it's about navigating that space, loving that space, feeling especially alienated from the world in that space, caring for it in a way that I'd never had a chance to care for a space before, like this idea that every single thing there is mine and everything around me is intentionally there, even if it's my own uh, like stain on a on a couch or a table. Like I know when I did that, nothing's like mysterious or surprise. And conversely, like the surprises that do occur and it's just you, which is even freakier, I guess, sometimes. <laughs> like I did that. I ate that whole box of cookies. But also like I think it's also an essay about solitude and how it's like a very 
confusing sentiment, like one that you can either really appreciate, but one that can also make you feel a bit uh, like you're on the brink. Mm -hmm. Well, that's kind of what we were just talking about this in the hallway too. Like this idea of being a writer and working from your house and like I work from my bed and sometimes I'm like, this is amazing. And then sometimes I'm like, I'm going fucking crazy. And it's such a fine line. You just like tilt over the edge and then Totally. I feel like, you know, when people talk about how in New York um, they arrive places with like a film on them, like because it's just <laughs> like there's just general yeah. atmospheric grime. I think there's also a version of that when you spend all day working in your apartment on a deadline. You feel like you end the day and even the adrenaline from sending the document, you suddenly feel like there's like grime yes. all over you. But I really have no idea what that grime is. But it's definitely there. It's like existential grime. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or just like your ass in a chair all day. Right. Like not <laughs> or in a bed. I'm an, like a, a sickly. <laughs> I'm like the child from Secret yeah, I Garden. Can't, I can't work from bed. <laughs> There's no way. Haley, what as an editor, like what struck you about that piece? I liked the structure of it being an idea that you were working through, that it wasn't quite finished. And it is like in the book, it's the same format where it's like not exactly a list, but it's definitely structured by numbers. So it doesn't have to be something that comes through um, in a straight line or like follows a clear narrative. Like you said, it's just the experience overall of living alone. Um, it's not literally about living alone, which is what I liked about it and why I do sometimes return to it because I'm just about to end my first experience living alone. So I like when I was rereading it this morning. Um, yeah, it's about, like you say, like a form of deliberation or making choices or realizing what you're doing when you have the luxury of not paying attention to it. It's, yeah, another form of paying attention, mm -hmm. I guess, is what I responded to. Not having to. a witness to. Oh, my God, yes. Yeah. Well, when we were, okay, so, yeah, we were talking about how I'm about to move in with two roommates, which I've never, I've never lived with people I don't know before. Oh, really? So no experience. Um, and in my head, I kept being like, oh, well, I can't be weird anymore. And then my follow-up <laughs> thought was, yes, exactly. Right? <laughs> this is going <laughs> to maybe it's force healthy. me yeah, to not do that stay in bed all day right. or not. like Yeah, because I can definitely go entire days without ever speaking aloud. And then in the book, you mentioned like you go to dinner and you can't control the levels of your voice. <laughs> right. Because right? you forget. Right. You forget that your voice is going to crack. Yeah. 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 Or like when I was freelancing, I would feel like a puppy sometimes. My boyfriend would come home and I was like, what's up? What'd you do? What'd you do? Tell me about everything. Like yeah. And I'm like, why didn't I just fucking go outside? Yeah, go for a walk. But yeah. Like Turn it's the worst, most self-destructive behavior. Yeah. But it's also amazing. Yeah, it's productive. <laughs> I love that line, too. Um, I'm just going to read it so I don't mess it up. But any vain attempt to expect jokiness, for instance, from a pot that mysteriously falls on my head no longer exists. Like, that made me laugh out loud because I know exactly what you mean. It's like, you know, like something's a comedy and something's a tragedy. And I think when, if that happened to me in front of somebody, I totally know what you mean. You would like laugh it off. Mm -hmm. But if it happened to you alone, like I broke a mug last week when I was working from home by myself and I like burst into tears. Yeah. There's a quality <laughs> to experiencing the most mundane things. But when you're by yourself, you can feel really pathetic. I'm not sure yeah. why the energy converts to just like something very plain feeling pathetic, but definitely happens when you live by yourself. More lady problems after this break. There's another line, too, that I that I wanted to ask you about where you write, um, winter's weedy indoor amber glow emboldens the bluesiest approach to oneself, which is by nature the easiest to deny. Something about winter is just like, like you have to create a lot of your light 
like your your own like because there isn't that much in the day right so everything is like very kind of bluesy or romantic or you know you wake up in the dark and it's dark before you even get home or it's dark before you even uh consider what you're eating for dinner you know so I think like everything you do to add light in your life in the winter is like can be nostalgic or really depressing or if you have a penchant like me to pretend you live in the movies it could seem like very moody Mm -hmm. I don't know I think that's part of it yeah but also I mean I didn't feel that way when I was living with a roommate Hmm. because you can stay in your mind a lot longer when you're by yourself like you turn on lamps when you're living with people and you're just turning on lamps right um you're like asking your roommate hey can you read do you want me to turn on the light but when it's just yourself it's like could be kind of cinematic. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Haley, you said something too yesterday about how like she draws on all of these different influences in, in like pop culture and brings them all together in this really fascinating way. Yeah, like um, a lot of references, which like I liked. Is it okay if I like share something about no, us no. personally? The way yeah, we, yeah, go for but, it. <laughs> um, yeah, like the main way that you and I communicate is through sending each other Instagram DMs, if I'm being totally honest, just oh, yeah. as like the Olsen twins. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or like what? things, yeah, or yeah. like things that we want to buy. <laughs> or like things that we want to buy, but also it's just like, this is the movie I'm going to watch. This is the book I'm reading. This is the line from the book that I'm reading that I like just need you to see. Where a lot of the times, like, I am sending it directly to you and I want a response. I want to hear what you have to say. But it's more just like, here's where I am at this moment. Um, and then when I get that from you, like, it's also like, oh, that's where Deirdre is right now. Or she's at a different place in the same book or a completely different book. Or over the summer, I think you were rereading Renetta Adler. And then I was like, well, now I have to. <laughs> like, <laughs> Oh, yeah, I was reading Speedboat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I had to go read Pitch Dark. Um, yeah, it is not the same thing as talking about yourselves, but it's maybe a way of talking about ourselves that is easier or like, um, yeah, it's where I literally am, but not physically. Wait, that doesn't make any sense. It's where I mentally am. And that's what I liked about sharing it. Um, So in your writing, when you reference the movies that you're thinking about or the way you're turning yourself into a character in these movies, it's not just this, like, generic film heroine. Like, I know it's going to be, um, you know, Barbara Loden or it's going to be Polly Platt or it's going to be, like, any of the other or it's going to be an Olsen twin. Just kidding. (laughs) I want to go off on this Olsen twin tangent. Please tell me about your love for the Olsen twins. I think, well, first of all, I'd like to clarify. (laughs) Please do. Because (laughs) I feel like when we say Olsen twins, we're like taking away the whole aspect of their life that I'm really talking about, which is the row. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. yeah. There's their uh, so you're post Olsen twin. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're no longer associating them in twinship (laughs) in Full House. Speak for yourself. Yeah. (laughs) But are they not like the ultimate in young women who are never young? Yes. Like, they were never really kids, even though they were professional yeah. children. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that yeah, one, too. That's they were, perfect. they were never really kids. I think, though, also, just, I mean, I will, I could talk to you about um, their coats, for instance, forever, um, and, like, their paparazzi shots when they're having their cigarette breaks outside. I, like, love that archive of photos. But um, to kind of jump off what Haley was saying, I think part of also why we share these, like, we DM each other these images, or yesterday she DM'd me that New York— uh, the New York Review uh, 
of books, their classics. Um, Imprint was coming out with a new Elizabeth Hardwick book of essays. Was that it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I totally forgot I did that until yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. Because um, it's an instinct. Because yeah, yeah. you just see it and you're like, I'm going to shoot that off to Durga. And I think that like, and that's how I am. I'll see something and I just like shoot it off to Haley. And it's not really for response, but I think it's part of what happens when you have a friendship with someone that is not just about like care and support, but like connecting um, in terms of like taste and pursuits and because sometimes I think I'm seeing something and I'm not even seeing it as me, but I'm seeing it as something Haley would appreciate my like my eyeballs are like appreciating what's around me also in appreciation of my friends. And I think that's kind of also what's going on there. Like I'll see a cut of a shirt and thank Haley, but not because Haley needs to wear it. Or it's almost like a shorthand for we love the asymmetry. We don't even have to talk about it. It's just, I don't know what it is. It's not even that deep, honestly. It's just, <laughs> it's just like a nod. Yeah. Well, so much of your writing is like that. There's just these long lists of things that aren't necessarily related at first glance, but they make a lot of sense in a row. Like um, I wrote one down where you're talking about um, the first few sips of red wine, riding the subway after seeing a movie, the length of the city, only to forget that the train rises above ground as it crosses the East River. Like those are two utterly unrelated events, but it makes sense as an image. And that like I was telling uh, you, Durga, right before this, that they, I dog-eared the shit out of this book because <laughs> there were so many places where I was like, yes, <laughs> like that connection makes so much sense to me. So I'm curious when you're writing, is it like, okay, these are two things that I've thought about being connected before? Is it kind of just coming out of you? Like some of the stuff I think I've carried with me for a minute and I just didn't have a home for it. That's kind of the beauty of writing a book, I think, is that someone's telling you you can build a home um, and they're like here are the materials i.e. how they're going to bound the book and edit it with you but um, they're really letting you say decorate you know um, and I think uh, some of that stuff yeah I've carried with me for a minute like I've wondered why does this action remind me of this memory and why does this film remind me of this person and how why are they related but I think a lot of the the that stuff happens on the page, it's like really hard to explain. Mm -hmm. You kind of go into this state where I think stuff that you've harvested for a minute, you can elaborate on more once you're working on a piece of writing, especially with a book where you don't feel the pressure to have it pegged to anything of the moment, you know? And so I think some of that stuff happens more naturally. Um, with something like a book mm -hmm. because because I, I didn't have to I didn't have to prove to anybody, um, which is sometimes something I feel if I'm, you know, even writing like a film review that it has to be relevant. And there was something really freeing about writing a book where I felt like I could be completely irrelevant constantly. <laughs> right. Like it's not content. It's definitely <laughs> not content. <laughs> That's You're, the name of your second yeah. essay collection. <laughs> Definitely not content, which is too much and not the mood part, too. <laughs> I would read that. Yeah. I would read that. <laughs> or the name of your movie. Or the name of my movie. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, Definitely not, not content. content. <laughs> yeah, that's the rom-com. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that, I think, links nicely to the next essay that we want to talk about, which is Summer Pictures, which is also edited by Haley. Um, do you want to tell uh, the listeners what that one's about? This funny thing I have where I'm not really down with summer. <laughs> as a season, as what it does to people. It's weird. I love heat. I'm not bothered by heat. 
living in New York for as many years as I had been, um, summers in New York, I think finally took a toll on me. I was very confused by how to spend that much of daylight, essentially. Um, And as someone who loves going to the movies, it's always been kind of a huge uh, paradise for me. It's freezing cold. um, It's dark. I don't have to talk to anybody. (laughs) I mean, I could go on. Uh, So I think I just wanted to write an essay about it. But it's also uh, funny because when you were saying previously about how I um, don't feel like like some of my references aren't kind of necessarily the most popular ones in writing that essay, I talk about like Audrey Hepburn uh-huh. a lot. And I remember when I was writing it, I was feeling a bit insecure because I, I felt like, wow, she's like the most basic actress to be <laughs> nostalgic about. Like every girl has like an image of her with the croissant in front of Tiffany's. And sometimes when I'm like looking for sublets online, if I see anyone with the Audrey Hepburn Ikea print, I'm like, nope, not emailing them. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, no. But then I was like, no, be honest. Like when you were a kid, she represented this idea of not just the movies, but like how a woman photographs in the movies. Mm -hmm. And so, so yeah, sorry, that went off. Um, No, that was great. But that was kind of where the essay was about. It was about, it was kind of like my way of, uh, listing why I didn't like summer and it ended up kind of being more about how I spend so much time at the movies and how they've influenced me since I was a kid. Yeah, I mean, reading that, I had my first New York summer this summer because I just moved here last year. And it was like, I love summer. I hate New York summer so much. I was so unhappy. And reading this essay, I was like, yes, this is exactly why. And I also have this new strategy now. I'm just going to be in the movies all day. So, like, Oh, yeah, it's great. It's, it was very it was very freeing because you do feel like this pressure to be outside and enjoy the day and all of this bullshit. But like, no, no, I horrible. love when it's really beautiful weather and I'm kind of adamantly staying inside. <laughs> I'm like nothing like a beautiful day for me to not go outside. <laughs> Haley, what is, what's your hot take on the summer? Oh, I hate summer. And this is like my most controversial opinion, I think, just because, yeah, like I don't like being hot. Um, I like get very tired and irritable very fast. Um, I've just always been an indoor kid, (laughs) I guess. So movies for me too, like that was a deliberate choice you had to make where you're like, no, I'm that person. I would rather be in a theater. I'd rather be sitting inside with a butt. I don't want to go play like in a playground or whatever. I mean, I love like the beach or whatever in moderate doses. But New York too, like you were saying, uh, it's not just summer. It's New York summer. That's when the grime is at its most potent. Peak. Yeah. Peak grime. But now I will say I just had my second New York summer and I've started to like embrace the dirt. Okay. Like I just don't mind it as much anymore. So probably a bad sign. No, I think it's, I think you could, I think it's just a question of also becoming more comfortable with yourself. Like I just feel like I'm a walking, I'm walking inside out with all my like insecurities and vulnerabilities in the <laughs> yeah. summer. Like there's no way to conceal. There's no coat to throw over yourself, you know. So let's talk about Things I Cannot Unhear, which was another great one. Um, what's that one about? Um, that was an essay that I wrote for a reading, actually. So I wrote it keeping in mind that I would be reading it out loud. So I wanted to then write something very like sonic minded, I guess. So that's um, that's where that uh, idea came from, essentially. But I think I've always been fascinated by any kind of experience, if it's smell, touch, sound, that is like impossible to erase from one one's mind. And so that's why I wrote it. Um, and I kind of uh, structured it as a lot of things come to me as a list. And I tried to think of 
the most, probably the most obvious examples that came to me, but ones that I haven't really been ever, ever able to shake. And so that's sort of how that essay came to be. And Haley, you said you heard her reading it. No, actually, I wasn't at that reading. Oh, that was she before, just sent it to you. Yeah, that was before I lived in New York, um, but it was just a few days later. Um, yeah, so I had to, like, use my imagination a <laughs> lot. Um, but I went and I, like, pulled up, you know, the YouTube clips of Alan Iverson and James Baldwin and Nina Simone. And where are the other? Uh, those are, are the only ones on that I think have are have YouTube clips. Yeah, yeah, but the um, yeah, the rest of the essay actually – I swear this happened. I'm not making it up for dramatic <laughs> effect. But this morning when I was reading the part about you falling, which always, like, <laughs> no reference another essay in the book, but, like, Heart Museum, it, like, makes my heart go crazy just thinking about that happening to you. Um, and, yeah, it's the part where you talked about how you kind of gasp, and it's, like, an acceptance gasp. I was like, well, this is what's going to happen to me now. Um, right at that moment, I knocked over my water and it almost <laughs> hit um, my computer. And I made like like a sucking in my teeth noise that was just like so not cool. <laughs> like it wasn't even like, oh, no, something bad's happened. It was just like, <laughs> like a cartoon character or something. And it's like, I can't believe that was my reaction. But there is something, like you say, about that sonnet experience that's sort of out of your control or it like provokes a reaction in you or is representative of a reaction of you that's so, um, yeah, part of your lizard brain, like yeah. not that higher consciousness. <laughs> no, totally. You're an animal. Yeah. Some of the sounds that we emit, when, especially when they're reactions to stuff, we, we they're not premeditated. No. They're our body just being like, you are an animal. Don't you forget it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, something else takes over. Um, so, yeah, so taking the time to actually look at that when so much of the experience is unconscious, I guess, can um, – for me, when I was reading it, I liked trying to make those sorts of unconscious experiences more present, like giving words to things that we assume can't be made verbal or vocalized. We'll be back with more Lady Problems after this ad. I was shocked by how much you remembered about that fall, like the details of it, the mm. sound of it. Well, actually, it's funny. I don't think I remember much. It's just probably that I have written it, which is the crazy thing about writing. <laughs> if you, I mean, if you actually think about it, like I, I, re I remember certain parts, right? But it's not like there's no telling. I feel there's no story. It's I just, guess maybe you just describe it so well that I could like <laughs> picture it exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's the funny thing about writing, right? Like a memory can uh, gather a lot of textures that in that moment probably didn't seem important to you at all. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I. I mean, I had to sit with it and think about it. I've never written about it. And I've definitely had people ask me, like, why haven't you written a much longer essay about this? And I I feel this way about writing and I and I really believe in it, especially with something like an accident. It's you're gonna only write about it when you really need to. And I don't even mean like in a therapy. Mm -hmm. I really don't believe in writing as like catharsis <laughs> at all. Um, but it's almost like memory as use. So this this memory for me in a very practical way, and maybe it makes me seem like cold-hearted, was useful for this essay because there was a sound that right. I could use. It was almost like for me a bit detached of the feeling of the accident. That's so interesting. Why don't you think of writing as catharsis in any way? Um, because the actual act of writing doesn't feel that way to me. It's like very stressful <laughs> and... Uh, 
um, scary and uh, torturous sometimes. Um, but also it might just be kind of the writing that I want to do and the writing that I'm drawn to reading or art in general, like films I love watching. I, I, I uh, yeah, I don't, I think maybe it can be cathartic for the writer, but I think there's also like another entry point and I think I prefer the other one. Which is? Um, kind of speaking at a bit of a remove from the emotion, not like diagnostically or something, but um, describing feeling without describing the feelings, like describing a feeling by using an image instead that might seem completely unrelated. But who knows? Maybe it just means that I'm a very half-formed person and have a lot of work to do on myself, and I'm scared of discovering what will happen if I treat writing more like catharsis. I don't know. No, I mean, I feel the same way. Writing has never been—I mean, I feel good when I'm done, but, like, the act of it—I don't know any writer. I mean, Haley, do you, like, enjoy the act of writing? I'm (laughs) shaking my head no, (laughs) very vigorously. Um, No, and also, more than that, I mean, maybe this is, like, kind of pretentious, but, like, I don't think— like, writing can be therapeutic for both, like, the writer and the reader, but, like, the reader's not your therapist. Like, you shouldn't be using your writing in order to, like, offset that emotional baggage onto somebody else. It's more supposed to be, like, not that I'm the arbiter of what writing is supposed to be, but no, you, you want to, <laughs> but you, like, you want to communicate something for a reason. Like, what right. you're saying, you were writing about noises and the way noises live in your memory, and this is a noise that lives in your memory that you want to share, um, So it is about you literally, but everybody has a moment like that or is going to have a moment like that where the, you know, the way they recall it is kind of out of their control. Yeah. And I actually think that people think feelings are a lot more interesting than they are. End the podcast there. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) We have nothing else to say after that. Let's all just die now. That's extremely true. It is. It is. I love that so much. (laughs) Stop writing about your fucking feelings, everyone. (laughs) No, but I think what you're talking about is, like, to get really, like, rudimentary is showing and not telling. Like, you're not not prescribing someone's reaction to what you're writing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and I also think it's just, honestly, writing is so hard. It's so much more fun to treat what you're trying to express as a puzzle. And often the first— thing that comes to mind is the feeling of a memory or the feeling of an experience. And it's really exciting for me, often like an writing exercise to like step back and think there's another way for me to say it. And it's not going to be through feelings. It's going to be through some other vessel. Yeah, this is another like friendship moment. But I do, I remember like the first time you ever spoke to me about Polly Platt, which was at the Mermaid Inn. Is that what it's called? It's like right around the corner from here. We went for oysters oh, with some people. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I had never heard of her, but it was one of those things where once you explained who she was, I realized like I knew who she was because what she did is so visible. Like it's so much a part of all these iconic films. Like she cast all the actresses that I remember growing up watching or like the movies that are the most formative aesthetically. Um so, like, but she had to be, like, brought into the focus by someone who knew her way better than me. And so now this is, like, my favorite story to tell where it's just like, well, my friend Durga <laughs> talked to me about Polly Platt once. Um, yeah, now I feel like you're missionary. <laughs> Durga, tell us about Polly Platt. Well, I guess, first of all, why it's related to my book would be 
a good I when I was trying to think of an epigraph for the book I wasn't even sure if I wanted to put one because I felt like a collection of essays especially with previously published it would seem sort of um forced like it didn't match and I had two quotes that had come to mind and one was like an Ann Carson quote but it was about memory and it had like you know made so many rounds on social media that I was also maybe this is too on the nose um so I thought I really wanted to quote someone um who means a lot to not just to me but how I see because I feel like so much of the book is how I see so I started to think of people in the film world and um Polly Platt came to mind and I the epigraph is I just had this one image of Jack Nicholson holding a pink balloon. And Polly Platt said that in an interview she did for probably the only profile you can find of her online. Um, it was in Premiere magazine. Um, the writer um, is Rachel Abramowitz, and she wrote a book called Is That a Gun in Your Pocket, which is essentially a book about all the women who were behind the scenes in Hollywood, like running studios, production designers, script writers, directors, Elaine May, um, Nora Ephron, um, Sue Mangers, and sort of like shining a light on them. Otherwise, not many people ever have. And um, Polly Platt says that thing about Jack Nicholson to her because she worked on The Witches of Eastwick. And basically... I mean, that scene is pretty iconic in the movie where there's all the balloons in the mansion. I think it is, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I love the idea that she just said, I just had this idea because that's so much of how I believe that women's instincts get taken advantage of because they can't really necessarily put words to why something clicks or like the gears start connect, but they know and they really believe it's it's like... There's like a long game with that image. It's sort of why I believe like most casting directors are women because they just have these really good instincts. And so long story short, when I first discovered Polly Platt, I don't even actually remember how at this point. But um, every anecdote I was learning about her, I just felt like it was part of this larger narrative that really fascinates me about women, especially who work in film and in Hollywood, who they had all these brilliant ideas that became film iconography, but, you know, the film belongs to the director. And so, you know, production designers um, or, you know, or casting directors are kind of in the shadows when they're essentially finding the face of the film or, you know, she was the production designer on the last picture show and like the most, it's like a down and out Texas town. And it was her idea to, um, take out the E in the Texaco sign at the gas station. And that became so iconic, you know, but it's like these slight little ideas that then become part of um, history, um, but they go uncredited. It's also hard to credit instinct, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so because instinct sometimes then goes through so many versions of whatever project you're making but it really starts there so that's why I wanted that as the epigraph because I felt like her just having an image of Jack Nicholson holding a pink balloon seems simple enough but it's like such a huge part of that film right. and she didn't can't explain why that meant anything to her or why she saw that in her mind um but yeah so so Polly Platt was um a lot of things. She was a producer, uh, a production designer. Um, she 
uh, was a screenwriter. Um, she was married to Peter Bogdanovich, and um, she cast Sybil Shepherd in the last picture show. She saw her face on a magazine, and they were at a grocery store checkout line. There's a lot of um, arguments in this story, like who cast who. But again, like they were married, and that's another thing that always fascinates me is like a lot of the instincts that a woman might have when she's in a relationship with a bigger name the collaboration, the first read of a novel, the edits of a script, like what ends up in the end. Like you don't want to be the petty woman taking credit for those minor things, but you also deeply feel the pang of no one recognizing that was your idea um, and that that wasn't your idea because you know the formula to good ideas. That was your idea because you're just a brilliant woman. Right. So, um, so yeah, she just had this eye. She was... She, you know, it, it, the range is so big, but every time I was reading like trivia or anecdotes of her life, it was everything from her casting uh, Tatum O'Neill as Ryan O'Neill's daughter in Paper Moon or gifting James L. Brooks, Matt Groening's um, cartoons, and that ended up becoming The Simpsons or um, watching the short Bottle Rocket and telling Peter Bogdanovich, I will move to Texas for these three boys. They are it. And those three boys were the uh, the Wilson brothers and Wes Anderson. So she just had that quality that I really am drawn to, which is people who see something and can't explain why it's everything, but they, but they know it, you know? Um, but yeah, she was a pioneer. She was like the first woman to uh, be in the... Art Directors Guild of America and um, yeah and you know the story's sad like Peter Bogdanovich left her for Sybil Shepherd on the set of The Last Picture Show um, but honestly actually one of my favorite anecdotes of hers is I was reading this is like why I'm like weirdly obsessive and it's strange because of her family listens to this <laughs> podcast which I doubt they will this be like fascinating. This- I'm like just riveted right now <laughs> well I'm like my goal is to one day write like a much longer thing about her but basically um I was reading one of her daughter's um, wedding announcements, or no, wedding, what do you call it in the New York Times where they describe the courtship? Uh, oh, the vows to The vows, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it was in the vows section, and it was one of her daughter's. Um, and because there's not a lot online about her, so you kind of just like hyperlink to everything possible if you're like me and you're like, you get compulsive about a person. <laughs> and there was this anecdote where they were describing like the courtship story of one of her daughters and her, her husband, I think his name was Pax. And apparently the first time Polly met him, the daughter was like packing up to move somewhere. And so she was helping her pack up the car and her daughter was crying so much that Polly drove the car around a block around the block so that her daughter could see him one last time. And that was in the vow section. But I remember thinking like, not only is that so thoughtful, but like, yeah, Polly, like that's her, that was her thing, you know, like I think she, she, she got, she got what a special moment is, but it's really hard to give a title to that on a mm-hmm. film set. Um, yeah, I think her, I think she also lived really cinematically. Like um, Albert Brooks has an anecdote, I think about how on the set of Broadcast News where she was a producer, 
I think the, they wanted a lot of red in the movie for some reason. And in the early, the early scenes of that movie, there's flashbacks of the, of the three main characters as kids. And apparently Albert Brooks like looked up and saw her one day on her hands and knees, like painting the, the inside of the steps red, you know, it's like these little, these little things that I really, uh, I think kind of build an entire shot, you know, and are memorable to the audience, even if the audience might not be clocking it. Like you watch broadcast news and you do think, whoa, there's a lot of red in that. Um, So, yeah, I think that's why I've always been really fascinated by her. And sometimes I think it's a it's a it's a dangerous fascination because I tend to be really fascinated by all these women who are buying the scenes in Hollywood and what what is is that fascination me wanting like retribution for them <laughs> or is it like i feel like some kinship with this idea of like knowing you have good instincts but not necessarily knowing how to be confident about them or um making them more a part of how you are to the outside world um we're all nodding in this room we're all just like yes yeah it's like hard to convert that energy right um well I think that's what you do with this book I mean everything you're saying sound like this idea of acting on an instinct and being able to describe why it's interesting and create these images I feel like that's what you do in your writing so that's really interesting to me that that's what you pinpoint about her well with the with the book it was a real chance to do that I think I don't really get to do it a lot I'm definitely the person when I file a draft to an editor you know that I'm like that second paragraph of a profile where you're supposed to list like, and these are all the films. Oh my God, I hate that. I literally avoid it. I just write like second paragraph TK and like italics because I know that whole paragraph is going to be italicized anyways because it's just like movie titles. I just like don't like the broad biographical details of someone's life. I like that Polly Pat drove around a block to let her daughter see her guy one last time. You know, like that's the kind of stuff that has story that's impactful, that's original. Um, And so I definitely feel like this book was a chance for me to write about all the stuff that gets edited out (laughs) or that I feel like will just be cumbersome in a word count when I'm, you know, filing another deadline. So that reminds me of what you were just saying about like feelings not being that interesting, which is also the (laughs) title of your third collection of essays. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's Really, like, for lack of a better word, it's not that interesting to say I was so sad to leave him. It's interesting to say I was so sad that my mother had to drive around the block so I could see him one more time. Like, when you talked about these things, like, Jack Nicholson standing there with a pink balloon, you are talking about a feeling, but in a way that transmits to the person watching or reading so much more beautifully or cinematically or even just effectively than saying, like, I'm the devil incarnate, or right. I'm sad, or <laughs> yeah. I'm happy. Like Jack Nicholson holding a pink balloon is not a thought that you have, and it's a good thought. It's like <laughs> it's creepy, it's haunting, it's so right. intriguing. It's like the kind of thought that if you don't put that in a movie, you're like in the wrong business because it's immediately like you can't unsee that, you know. And so, yeah, I think she was just she was born to make movies better. That's what she did. Um, And so, yeah, that's why it kind of bums me out. There's not a lot of information about her. Every time I watch like a Bogdanovich biography or stuff, she's kind of like not not a a footnote necessarily, but her story is always like as contributing to his story. Um, And obviously this this premiere article that I got a lot of the most of these facts from, um, you know, it's like the profile of her. But like there's one scene apparently where she gets on the phone and she asks him to, you know, 
can you give a quote to this piece, you know, like a secondary or whatever? And he says no. And she yells like, I've been giving quotes for you forever, you know, like, but, but who knows if that's like, you know, exactly how it went down. But um, that kind of structure of being someone who you were that other person's, the, the person who, you know, reads the script when it's still in the privacy of your home. I don't know. There's something heartbreaking about that to me. Please write this. <laughs> this is, I'm like really excited. To I would it. love to. <laughs> Anyone uh, out there listening? <laughs> so thank you, Haley Mladic, for being here today. Thank you for having me. And Durga Chubos, this was so lovely. Thank you for having me. Can you um, tell people where they can find Too Much and Not the Mood? Um, it comes out April 11th. Um, I guess if you shop on Amazon, it's there. <laughs> uh, but go to your bookstores if you're in New York. Um, yeah, I think it'll be a bit on sale early at McNally Jackson because I'm doing a talk there with Gia Tolentino on the 10th of April. Okay. Um, but yeah, online or in stores. I don't know. Where do people buy books? <laughs> that's, that's about it, I think. I'm not going to be like that covering it, it around the city. <laughs> like I'm Emma not, Watson. I, I'm not Emma Watson. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm Rachel Handler and thank you so much for listening to Lady Problems. And remember that we want to listen to you, so follow us on Twitter at LadyProblemsPod, where you can ask us about a lady problem you're having, or leave us a message on the Lady Problems hotline at 205-677-5239. This episode of Lady Problems was produced by Michael Catano, James T. Green, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. <laughs>